It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Brewery. Each week, we look at sports topics of local interest, maybe a national sports topic or two. We keep the gambling segment chugging along this week. We're all talk about a good Oaks day and a miserable Derby day for me. And of course, we've got my favorite topic, Ask Skinny Anything, where you can ask me a question on any topic. I've got a couple of lists I've been asked to compile this week. One that's a carryover from last week where I did literally give me a culpa and ask for a week to try to compile it. I'm still going to probably miss a name or two. Um, but I'm, I, I, it was a fun exercise because it brought me back to some names of guys where I went, oh my, yeah, okay. Um, and I'll just tell you what the question is. I'll do it later in the podcast, but I was asked to name a, a, a lineup of all time, Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati high school players, a team that I would uh, wind up coaching. So there's a subjectivity to it, but I also was trying to take some of the best players. Let's face it. Of all, I'm not taking five schlubs to take charges. Trust me. I'm hey coach, it's about the Jimmies and the Joes, not your X's and O's. Just get the yeah, right guys on the court. All yeah, right. I'm, I'm, I'm not taking schlubs. I'll tell you that much. I've got, uh, I've got the group I'm, I'm going to go with and I'll probably miss somebody and that'll be always good. Cause then somebody can correct me on Twitter. We can talk about that next week. So we got a lot to get to Rick. No, we do. And they like correcting us on Twitter. So there's always, yes. it's always good when we leave room for that. Uh, but let's start off with some NFL draft talk. The Bengals, selected Jamar Chase with the fifth pick in the draft and then used their second pick on local product Jackson Carmen from Clemson and prior to that Fairfield High School. Cincinnati then spent three straight picks on the defensive line with two edge rushers and a defensive tackle. Skin, I have a few draft questions for you here. One, there seemed to be a little bit of controversy around the Jackson Carmen pick in the second round. Do you think the Bengals did enough to protect Joe Burrow with their draft strategy? I do, and people continue to not want to hear this. Let's not forget that last year, it wasn't a tackle that got Joe Burrow hurt. It might not even been an offensive lineman that got Joe Burrow hurt. It was a fluky play. It was Michael Jordan, who might not even make the team this year, who was the guy that got run over on the play where, where Burrow got rolled up on. And I've said this before, Rick. I blame some of what happened last year to Joe Burrow on Zach Taylor behind a, an iffy offensive line, dropping a rookie quarterback back an average of 46 times a game. You were just, you were playing Russian roulette with that guy. At some point there was going to be a fluky one around his knee, knee that ended up hurting him. So I, I well, do. It, it, it was the fluky one that ended up hurting him. It didn't need to be because he was getting crushed on a regular basis too. It yeah. But again, that, that, it goes back to, to, to why would you drop any rookie quarterback back 46 times a game? Right? Exactly. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm agreeing with you hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't the tackles that got him hurt. So, and you've upgraded one of the tackles with, with Riley Reef to Bobby Hart. The Carmen pick is interesting because it, uh, they, they said they targeted him. Um, I don't know if I always believe that or not. That's always well to, good to say in, in retrospect, when um, you make your selection, there were three tackles that certainly seemed to fit the NFL mold that were taken between 38 where they traded out of and 46 where they took Jackson Carmen. Now they did get some extra draft capital with a couple of fourth round picks that they turned into a, to another offensive lineman and turned into a run stopper and Tyler Shelvin. You can argue whether that was a good pick or not. And that's fair, but they turned that in, into those those couple of guys, and they still, in their mind, got their guy who they're going to try to plug in at guard right away. The hope is he dominates at guard, or at least certainly is more than serviceable at guard as a rookie to the point where next year you kick him outside to play tackle. Um, I was not a big fan of his in high school, Rick. I, I did a couple of his games when I was, when I was an analyst for, for Time Warner uh, for you know four or five years, and I did a couple of Fairfield games his senior year, and he's one of the few guys I ever said on the air, and I, I don't like to criticize high school kids um, it just isn't 
I don't think the right thing to do, but I, I, I was describing a play in which they, they kind of isolated on him trying to pull. And I said, that might be the laziest play from a player of that talent. I think I've ever seen. Now I said at the time, I'll stand by it at the time because it was a lazy play, but this kid also developed into a starting left tackle the last two years at a pretty good place in Clemson. So yeah, um, kudos, yeah kudos to him. Um, is he probably a left tackle? Most scouts, if you read their, their analysis of him, probably not a left but if, again, you drafted Jonah Williams with the thought that he's your left tackle of the future, we still don't know whether he is or not, but that was the hope that he's your guy. Um, and if Carmen comes in and starts at guard, Rick, that means you've replaced a guy that they like. They like either Xavier Suofilo, who you probably replace, or Quentin Spain. I don't think it'll be Spain. I think Spain will wind up starting at one of the guards, and it'll probably be Carmen at the other, which means he would have – they're not going to give this to him, but they're going. I think they're going to pencil him in as the starter from day one, and he plays himself out of that role probably. Um, hopefully he doesn't. But I think you've plugged a guy in at, at right guard. You've made yourself better at right tackle. Um, you know, Spain, when he came in, right or wrong, he played pretty good for this team last year in multiple spots when he played. If Trey Hopkins is healthy, you feel pretty good at center. And if Jonah Williams is healthy and stays healthy, you feel pretty good at left tackle. I don't think this is a top 10 offensive line. I'm not even sure it's a top 18 offensive line. I think it's a good enough offensive line to protect Joe Burrow. And I do want to bring up a quote that Brian Callahan, the offensive coordinator had. I thought it was a great one. And maybe he had this prepared, but I thought it was a really good one and it makes some sense. And the question was, I think our friend James Rapine asked, you know, what do you say to those that say it's criminal that you didn't take an offensive lineman here to do all you could do to protect Joe Burrow? And he said, listen, in today's NFL, you're not holding the ball as long as you used to. You're not taking seven step drops anymore. You're getting it out of your hands as quickly as possible. And when you're doing that, you better have wide receivers who can quickly win one-on-one matchups. And they believe Jamar Chase is that guy that not only can win a one-on-one, but catch the quick one-on-one and break one tackle and he gone. And I think that protects Joe. So once that starts happening, if, if you're looking across the board going, man, we've got Boyd Higgins and, and Chase on the outside. We got to at least have a safety to help, maybe two safeties to help. Suddenly now the box is down to six. You're not going to see as many blitzes. Um, you're going to soften the, 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 the box for Joe Mixon to run the ball, which is going to make you even better and hopefully put you in better down and distance in a regular basis. So I do think they did with Carmen if he comes in and plays right guard right away with the eventuality of him being a tackle and Deontay Smith, the fourth round pick, who a lot of scouts are as high on. And, and I think a couple of them had him actually rated higher than Jackson Carmen to battle for a swing tackle spot this year and then compete for one of the tackle spots next year. And the fact that chase may give you some ability to, to, you know, kind of soften those boxes up a little bit. And, 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 and if teams want to blitz go, okay, we got three guys on the outside that all can win one-on-ones and even Tyler Boyd last year, we saw him turn a five yard quick out route. I think it was at Miami into a 72 yard touchdown. Now he's not great at that, but he's capable of doing that. If you're going to go one-on-one across the board, I, I think that there's some truth to what Brian Callahan said. Yeah, I, I don't doubt there's truth to that. I, th- I think he's right in that line of thinking. I also think it's fair if you're especially a fan last year that watched what happened and watched that offensive line to take that approach of you had to do everything possible to upgrade your line to the best of your ability. That that was a reasonable take, I think, coming out of last year. I don't know that's the smartest football take, though. I think it's more of an irrational fan right. take of seeing Joe Burrow get hit over and over again, and you think you got to do more about this. I think, thinking about it long enough, I, I, I wanted Sewell originally as the, the first draft pick, but looking at it, all things considered, 
I don't have any complaints with the way the Bengals handled that. And I think they probably ultimately did the smartest football thing for the reasons that you mentioned, for the the way the draft played out, the depth that the offensive line position in this draft. I mean, they really did have a lot of options had they stayed at their at their original second round pick or even after trading back, they still had options to upgrade their offensive line at that pick. And they took a guy in Jackson Carmen who there were some question marks about him, but there are a few things I really like about Jackson Carmen. One is that he has all the physical tools. He was a sure. five-star talent coming yep. out of uh, high school, one of the best offensive line linemen in the entire country. He's giant. He has the, the size to be a tackle, either tackle, but he carries it really well. He moves and, and is mm-hmm. flexible and can get down and play lower with leverage like you would want a guard to do. So he does have the versatility to really play either spot because of his athleticism. And there was one more thing that really stood out to me that the Bengals said they liked. Paul Alexander said he liked about Jackson Carmen after working with him and was one of the reasons they decided to go with him. And that was, they said, his football IQ in terms of yes. knowing guys in the league and really studying the game. And you can say, okay, so he's a fan of football. He knew defensive linemen, whatever. And, and I agree. We'll see if that actually helps him when he gets to the NFL. But one thing I do know for a fact is the difference between the guys who develop into good players and, and continue to get better is guys who really love the sport, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, whatever, but they have to really love their game and really be into it and really be passionate. And you would say anybody who makes it to this level should love the game, right? Eh, Yes and no. I mean, some of these guys are really just that big, gifted and talented that they can get the scholarship offer. They can play at the high D1 level without loving the game. When you get to the NFL or the highest level of your sport, you have to dedicate yourself in a way that some other guys might not. And that's the, that's what separates the guys who really get better and don't the way they talked about his IQ and and how much detail and time he'd spent learning the game and, and other NFL players and college guys that he'd played against and understanding their tendencies that excited me because I think to me, that's a guy that seems like he really loves it. He really spends a lot of time on it and he wants to continue to get better. So for all those reasons, I had no issue with the Jackson Carmen pick. The fact that some people thought they reached for him a little bit in the second round when they got him, that didn't bother me at all. And the fact that they decided to wait until the second round to take their offensive lineman and even trade back after, you know, originally having that opportunity with the fifth pick in the second round. I I really like what they did here. Ultimately, I have no complaints. Yeah, and the funny part is Joseph Osai, who was taken in the third round, had a second round grade. Jackson Carmen, who was taken in the second round, had basically a third round grade. So you flip flop the way that that thing shook down, if if you will. The other part to Carmen, too, in in the way this shook down is even if, Rick, even if they had taken Penesul, what was the best case scenario for Penesul this year? I'm not talking about moving forward. I'm talking about for 2021. What was the best case scenario for what Penny Sewell was going to do for this football team in the short term? You're moving him out of his position from tackle to guard. And I know you're doing that with Carmen, right? But again, he would be doing exactly what Carmen is doing. Right. But and so, you're also not you're also not wasting your fifth overall pick on moving a guy right. out of the spot he plays. Right. And that's right. Yeah. I mean, you you would have to question the amount of instant impact a guy like Panay Sewell would have when you're changing his position as the fifth pick. And as, as people did bring up on draft day, which is a point that I hadn't really talked about beforehand, but I do agree with when you do that with the fifth overall pick, you ask for trouble. Yes. If the guy struggles at all. Guess what? The first thing him and his agent start complaining about 
Well, you changed my position. You yep. drafted me fifth overall, especially the fifth best player in the entire NFL draft, and then you changed my position. So, in, yeah, in there opinion, is going my, to be some issues that can come along with that. Yeah, my opinion of that would have been different if they had not signed Riley Reef. And I don't know if Riley Reef's right. got a lot in the tank left or not, but if you needed to draft a plug-and-play tackle, then I probably would have been that in that camp of, you know, you got to find a tackle. You got So go take Penny Sewell. So, no, you've got at least on paper right now a guy you believe in at left tackle, a guy who's done it for a long time at right tackle, and you're hoping to just squeeze one more year out of the guy. You drafted a, I don't even want to call Deontay Smith a developmental tackle. He was the voted the best offensive lineman on his team at the senior bowl. That's a one week occurrence, but scouts liked him going in. That just kind of proved it. So you've got a developmental tackle and your hope is Carmen is certainly great at guard. And if need be next year, he gets a chance to compete for tackle too. And if, and if for whatever reason, you fall in love with Carmen at guard and you're not quite there on Deontay Smith. Guess what you can do next off season too. go to free agency and get another right tackle. Yeah. Or draft draft the guy. Right. Let me ask you something because it seemed to me when I was reading a lot, a lot of the uh, coverage and even leading up to draft that people seem to think Carmen was going to be a guard in the NFL going forward. Is that right? Or is that not what you No, I I think that's right. That's where, I'm a big fan of Dane Brugler, the athletic. Um, I'm a subscriber. So I downloaded his, his draft guide, which was a must use for me during the, the whole draft run up process. And that's where he, he pretty much projected him as a guard with tackle potential. And that's fine. Because Again, he like has said, the size to play. Yes, tackle. He, he can be 340 it. pounds if you want him to be. And he played it on a high level on a high level, you know, he played left tackle on a high level. You know, that's the other thing about him too, is he has thousands of snap of experience at the highest yes. level. Like yes. that, that matters too. Sure. It does. Sure. It does. Absolutely. It does. And, and, and not that I think he's better than Panay Sewell or a better prospect, but that, that level of experience and proven production makes me even feel a little bit better than the, the fact of Panay Sewell is like, Hey, we're going off of one good year and then a sit out, you know, I yeah, mean, no, it's, right, right. That, that there's some question marks there too. Um, the, one of the other questions I had for you is, is there a pick you're particularly high on? And is there one that you question more than others? Um, I, I guess the Tyler Shelvin one in the fourth round, I question a bit. I mean, for really, he is he is simply a one-down, run-stopping tackle. Now, I will tell you this. If you opt to put Tyler Shelvin and DJ Reader in there on first down and say, <laughs> we're going to stop the run and you're gonna, we're going to put you into, into second and longs no matter what you do here. Now, obviously, teams can then throw on first down more and more and more. But um, I, I'm okay with it, but I kind of like – I, I, I get it. It's not awful. It's the, it's the third of three fourth round picks. Um, you know, Larry Ogunjobi and, and reader and Mike Daniels and, and Josh Tupo and Rennell Wren. That's a pretty good rotation. And now you're adding Shelvin. I'm not opposed to it. So I, I don't hate the pick. Really. There's not a pick. I disliked to be honest with you. I think the worst grade I gave was the six round pick Trey Hill. And there are some people that think he's got a chance to be the, the, the best, best, you know, lineman that the Bengals took in, in this draft when also I don't know if I believe that with a six round guy. I know people question the kicker in the fifth round. I don't because again, you got those two extra fourth round picks. You need a kicker. You need at least somebody to compete with Austin Cyber. And the kid's got a big leg with a lot of potential and was almost automatic under 40 yards. So yeah, I, I really, there's not a lot I question about what they did other than Carmen, just because based on where he was, he was pretty much mid third round grade. And this draft, I think, at the end of the day, is going to be judged on how great is Jamar Chase and how good is Jackson Carmen and how good are those tackles that were taken between 38 and 46 and how good is Penne, Penne Sewell. Uh, I, that, that's what we're going to look back on in three or four years is how did that all work out? 
Yeah, I think that's right. It is funny that you mentioned Shelvin as being the one that you might question the most because I would have had him as the one that I'm actually highest on and most excited about. I, I loved him at LSU. I, he, you cannot move that guy. He is right, he's so fat and strong and low to the ground that he just digs in. He's flexible with his legs. I mean, like, I don't know if you saw that one highlight that was getting retweeted right after he got drafted where it said something like, uh, Tyler Shelvin is cement or something like that. <laughs> no, but he like lied. he gets he gets double teamed immediately off the snap, and he sort of like flexes one leg lower to the ground, pushes back on these two guys, and they just couldn't move him. I mean, he didn't give up a single inch where he was because he's just so big, so strong, and so low to the ground with that low center of gravity. I, I think he is a fascinating piece to add to the middle of that line, and I do think you put him and DJ Reader up front. All of a sudden, you can really. St- plug the middle and and hold the line in a way that the Bengals have had trouble with the last yeah, few years, yeah. quite honestly. Teams, have, no doubt. when they need to run against the Bengals, they are typically able to run right up the middle. I'm fascinated to see what him and DJ Reader could mean if you can play them both together. But like you said, I mean, there's, there's less and less opportunities to play a couple guys like that together in today's NFL. Yeah. The only other thing I would say though is, is it does, if you want to, and you think you've upgraded your defensive line, you know, if you want to dominate at the point of attack, you know what you can get away with? You can get away with mediocre linebackers at that point. You can. I mean, if you're going to dominate the point of attack and let the linebackers run free, they don't have to be great. And so I think that's where I, there were some questions of the Bengals not addressing linebacker. I think they feel like at the bottom line is this, we can, we've got two guys we can get on the field on first down and we'll sub package it out from that point forward. So we're good with what we got. And again, you're not addressing every need and you're, you've got a lot of holes to plug on a, on a four win football team, but I, I, they, they had a plan. I mean, their plan was we're getting our playmaker in round one. We're addressing both sides of the, the, the line of scrimmage, you know, from there on out for the most part. And that's what they did. Well, yeah. And, and I was going to ask you about that because there were, you know, maybe another need or two that they could have addressed tight end is certainly one they could have taken at some yeah, point I along the way. I'm not saying they needed to. I'm just saying, look, there was there are other things they could have drafted other than a third edge rusher, another offensive lineman late. I personally was glad to see them say, hey, we've got big time needs at these couple of spots, the offensive line, defensive line. We're going to go all in. We're going to get as many guys as we can in this draft that we think can play those spots and let them battle it out for playing time. I love that philosophy. I was glad they didn't try to take a third end to be you know, CJ Uzama's backup or Drew Sample's backup, as opposed to saying, hey, we've got real minutes available right now for an edge rusher. Let's take a third. Let's take a third in this draft. See if Wyatt Hubert is going to battle for some minutes here. Like, right. I am totally fine with that draft strategy and actually glad that's the way they went. It showed that they acknowledged how big of a concern their lack of pass rush was last year no on doubt. defense and their inability to protect against pass rushers on offense. And Rick, here, here's a good scenario. This will be a good problem. If the Bengals wind up cutting a player or two that another team picks up and, and becomes a starter, that means you've got a pretty good roster. And I, I'm going to use the Buffalo Bills as an example. They've made it a habit here the last few years of bringing in a bunch of linemen, offensive linemen, and saying the best eight or nine stick, and we're going to probably cut a good player or two. I don't, I'm not telling you this guy was a good player, and I'm not going to tell you the other guy I'm going to tell you was a good, is, a, is, a, is a great player, but they both started games for the Bengals the last two years. John Miller was cut by the Buffalo Bills after being a starter for them. Quentin Spain was cut by the Buffalo Bills after being a starter for them. Why? They just brought in guys who were better. And John Miller then went, I think, started for Carolina this past year. Quentin Spain came in here and started for the Bengals. 
I like that. It, it's okay that if you go at some point, yeah, we did draft this guy, but you know what? Um, there's guys we just drafted that are better. We're going to let you go, and you're going to maybe go start. That That's a good sign. It means your roster's better. Yeah, I really can't say anything bad about this draft for the Bengals. I was fine with pretty much all the decisions they made, the guys they got, how it all played out. I thought it worked out pretty well. You graded every pick on Local12.com. People can find your grades, your explanations, all of that stuff. What was your grade overall for the entire draft for the Bengals, and what was your takeaway there? Yeah, I went B-plus just because the question mark of Carmen, to me, is is the biggest part. Um, it is a question mark, and you can't ignore the fact that it is because you, you, you are changing positions with him. Um, you, you did see some tackles that might have fit you go off the board when you traded backwards. And it is um, a reach by most people's projections. Yes, um, but really – to me, this draft has a chance when we look up to be an A. And I'll tell you, if Chase comes in as the real deal and there's not much else that comes out of this, it's still probably a B minus draft. I mean, honestly, if he comes in as a real deal and the rest of these guys yeah. are backups or schlubs or maybe McPherson makes as a kicker, then it's a B minus or a B. That's still pretty good. I just have a hard time looking back in three or five years and going, that was a crappy class. I really, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, unless I, Chase I, is a total flop and Carmen doesn't yes. pan out, then yeah, it's a, it's yeah. A I mean, it's, but, a but I go, Chase isn't good, but I think Chase is going to be good. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, potentially great. Yeah, potentially great. Yeah. All right. New details have emerged in the saga between the University of Cincinnati and former men's basketball coach John Brannon. Andy Wittry of the Out of Bounds newsletter wrote extensively about a log written by a UC athletic staff member that, as Wittry writes, summarizes reported meetings, practices, film sessions, and team breakfasts over the course of five months last year from August to December that outlines Brandon's alleged distrust of the university's administration and sports medicine staff members. Skinny, what, if anything, stood out to you from the newest findings in this John Brandon Cincinnati situation? Um, I, I read through that. It was pretty interesting. I mean, it, it was lengthy and it was detailed month to month to month. Um, I still don't know if it's fireable. I, I don't. I'm sorry that I don't. Um, I, I think there were times, obviously, it's clear. If this is true, that's the other thing. We're taking this person at their word, right? The person that documented this. Um, yes. And I'm not here to tell you that I'm trying to besmirch that person. I have no earthly idea, but we're, we're in theory taking this person at their word of what they wrote. Um, not Andy Wittry, the, the document that he obtained that, that he, he posted. Right. And, and he's and, protecting and it's, it's a staff member yes. who wrote a log uh, yes. documenting yes. all these different entries, sort of like a journal. And he is protecting that person's name. Now, it seems pretty obvious from anyone who has a brain that it is probably the strength and conditioning coach that left. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, again, I'm not going to besmirch that person. I'm not I'm going to take I'll even do this. Rick. Let's take them at their word of what they wrote. Right. I think there are things again where the athletic director needed to step in and he did with the one letter to John of, you know, basically you're pushing these guys too far. But if this was a, if this was a pattern that, that this guy was documenting, then at some point, John Cunningham probably should have stepped back in and gone, John, we've gone through this a thousand times. I'm going to write you up again. I'm going to write you up again. Um, And it doesn't seem like they did. And so they kind of waited till after the fact of here's our cards on the table. Listen, I know people don't want to hear this. I, I know they don't. And I'm not calling these kids soft. I'm, I'm going to guess that these kids, you know, were trying their best and some maybe weren't in the condition they needed to be in. Basketball conditioning is hard. It's hard. And sometimes you do, there's that fine line of pushing too hard and not pushing hard enough. And I know people get alarmed when they read punishment running. We all do it. I mean, I'll have a drill. You don't do the drill right. I'm going to give you one more chance in the drill. If not, the winning team stands on the side and claps. The other team runs. 
I'm probably on that vein of I'm not old school enough to not say every 20 minutes, go get water. I'm not, I don't, I think there's plenty of proof to keep kids hydrated and give them a little bit of a break. Even when you're pushing them. I mean, I push them to the point of I've seen guys that are, that, that you can almost tell they're going coach. Don't make me do one more. Hey man, that's what, that's what ha- you got to push yourself in conditioning and you got to be pushed in conditioning. Um, so from what I've read, okay. A couple guys, didn't handle the conditioning part well, maybe pushed a little too far. And okay, that's what an athletic trainer should do at that point. Step in and go, all right, for the safety of these kids, this guy's out. Other than that, I'm still not sure what I've read that's cause. I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm callous, but I'm not sure what I've read that's cause yet, Rick. Yeah, I think one thing that's important to note is even after this, we don't know a lot of details that you really need yes. to know to make a good judgment off of what well, happened the initial, in these situations. Go to the initial one, too, of the, the Freedom of Information Act letter that the inquiry obtained, the, the, the uh, termination letter. You and I were talking about the context of the improper benefit, right? Right. That People thought be, that meant he paid a player. And it turns right. out it doesn't seem like that's at all the case. Right. Um, probably what he did was is that even to the level of a secondary vial? I'm guessing it is. I, I would guess maybe it is. And then you, you go, the kid pays it back and all's right with the world. Right. I mean, yeah. The, what, what is, what his lawyer said he did and no one has refuted this is that that's he right. paid out of his pocket a hundred and something 35, dollars, $35, dollars, whatever it was for one of his players to see a psychologist that was not approved by the university. Now it's not something you're allowed to do, but it, it like you said, it's a minor violation. And it's also, by the way, if that is true, and that's the only thing that was paid for a scumbag move by the university to be calling well, this a, out. Well, I was saying that would sound like, to me like that, that he actually, that he actually cared about the kid. Yeah. I mean, th- that, that's a, the way they phrase that and the way they, they went about that is, is, is a ridiculous maneuver. Right. Now in fairness, they are in a legal battle now and that's what yes. happened. So I get it, but that is a scumbag move to act like that. And by the way, if he was dropping a bag, like he legit got caught dropping a bag, they wouldn't be pushing all this stuff about making the players run too hard. That wouldn't be their biggest concern and their biggest uh, point to stand on in terms of their case against firing John Brandon for cause. So uh, no, he didn't get caught dropping a bag. The way this was phrased, the way it was put out there. And the fact that it hasn't been refuted at all means I think it is along the lines of whatever Tom Mars put out there right. that he probably paid for some type of service. And, you know, they're saying it was a psychologist, but even if it was like, I've heard of coaches who have gotten in trouble because they paid an outside trainer for, for you know, paid one of the guys to go to outside trainer. You're not allowed to do that. You can't pay for your kids to go do anything out of your own pocket. It's illegal. So whatever, that is what it is. The other thing to your point that I would agree with is this is a Freedom of Information Act request that was fulfilled. So it's not UC putting anything out there. It's not propaganda on their part. They're not trying to leak things to the media. That's not what happened here. It, it's You get 20 days to respond to a Freedom of Information Act request. We've been, you know, we're close to 30 now since he was fired. So they're probably just fulfilling those Freedom of Information Act requests when, at the deadline that they were supposed to do so. This isn't them like putting things out there, but this is also why controlling the narrative works. Getting out in front of stories and, and putting your side out there works because as soon as people heard this, they were like, oh, mind made up. Now we have, now you have cause. Clearly this is, it's like, well, what do we actually have here? I mean, we've got one document that was written up by one employee that has since left from what we understand and seems to be disgruntled. And there's again, a lot of even questions. if I take him at his word, it still doesn't. It, it's well, that's a, what I'm saying. Let's let's take him at his to word. Some, I I guarantee you it's alarming to some. It's certainly alarming. There's definitely alarming <laughs> things here. But th- yeah, there, there are major questions I, I, I have, even if we accept him at his word, right? Right. 
Like, yeah, I mean, th- th- there's probably pushing too hard. I'm not going to deny that part. Like I said, as a coach, I I don't want. I would tell you the, the thing that I always do fear, and I always ask kids too. I you know I'm an I'm an asthmatic. I don't have it severely, but if I run or do whatever, I got three kids that have asthma. And when I push them, I can tell they're not dogging it. It's like if you need a puff, hop out, go get a puff, and then hop back in. I'm not going to let you die because of asthma. I think that's silly. I'm not going to let you die because I'm not going to give you water. I think that's silly. There's some old school stuff to this that I've always thought silly, but to condition, you got to push. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've never been into the hardo coaching thing. I mean, I get on Tom Izzo all the time for wanting to fight with his players on the sidelines and, and things of that nature. Like, I do not think that's the best way to go about coaching. I also acknowledge I have won exactly zero college basketball games. And there are a lot of guys who have won a ton of them that totally disagree with me. And that from that aspect, uh, that being said, I think the most damning thing we've heard to this point with regards to John Brandon, the thing that a lot of people around UC in particular are going to cling to is the fact that he didn't seem to have a good relationship with Bob Mangine or trust him. And a lot of people there love Bob Mangine, who's the head athletic trainer. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's not going to go over well if you didn't get along with him and you didn't seem to agree or trust what he was telling you. And then the water thing. I mean, there, there was uh, something in there that he didn't think the player should have as much water or rest as he doesn't believe it. He doesn't. uh, Yeah. It it, it said that he didn't believe in that, the old, that, that, um, the whole water break thing. I, I do. And I think again, well, it, you should, I mean, that's, that's you should. Exactly. exactly. I mean, that's, I, yeah. I, yeah. And then, and then there was, there was another thing, like there was a quote he made about the heart monitors that they, they, they all wear. Now they're checking them and says, I yes. know when we are in shape, you know, F the heart monitors is what he allegedly said, but here's the thing. We don't know what context that was said. He said, I know when we're in shape, that could, that could just mean like, I don't care that the stats, because these heart monitors measure all these stats like it's analytics for your health right and you get a readout afterwards on an app and you can see all these things it it might just be him saying i know it says we're running a lot and and you guys are running at x miles an hour or you're running x miles per practice and you're in shape we're not in shape yet like that could be all he's saying it doesn't mean i don't trust the heart monitor's warnings if you're if it's warning us and saying that you're about to die we'll listen to that that's you know we don't have the context to where that quote was from so i don't know that that is by itself like some huge red red flag i would say there are some major questions i have about this whole document in general one why did this employee start keeping a log it's a weird thing to do right i mean you don't you don't just all of a sudden decide a year into your employment or less that I'm going to start tracking the head coach here and his movements and, and write down every negative interaction we have. So when, and why did that start? When did he actually write the entries? Because uh, yeah, to be quite uh, honest, uh, yeah. a lot of this seems like right. it kind of was done retroactively, which, you know, if you were, I don't know, lost more games than you expected to lost a bunch of players in the transfer portal. And we're trying to figure out how you're going to fire your coach without paying them $5.25 million. It might seem like the type of thing you would ask an employee to reconstruct for you. So you have a good log, especially if you've got a background in compliance. So I would want to know when were these actually written? Were they written at the time or were they written after the fact? And three, who told him to do it? Because the way it's put out there, it seems like Cunningham did not ask him to do this. It seems like he presented it to Cunningham after the fact, at least that's the way it's presented to us. But again, why did he ever start doing it in the first place? It would seem like he was instructed to do this or he really had something against John Brannon very early on in his career to make him decide that he was going to document in writing every negative thing that John Brannon has done. Two, we were only told about one correspondence between Cunningham and Brannon. Is there a reason he never stepped in and did his job as the boss if he was really worried about player safety? I mean, 
He had one time back in November. October? That, yeah, October, that he, yeah. Well, November yeah. was when he, he uh, confronted him Total. about the practice from October right. where the guys had reportedly fallen out and one had allegedly passed out. If that's the case, and it was really about player safety, and that's why you had to fire John Brandon, why didn't you step in again? Why weren't there any other reprimands? Why did it sound like, from all indications, you completely stopped talking to John Brandon at all as the athletic director? Another weird move I would have questions about. Three, why do the entries stop in December? Just after you know a few games into UC season, nothing else happened from that point on? Where where are the rest of these entries? What What else do you have here? Um, and four, if this October 6th practice where guys were forced to run at the end is the principal moment UC is resting its case on for why they have caused to fire John Brandon. And I don't know if you'd agree with me, but that seems to be the case right now. This is their most damning piece of evidence that everyone is pointing to is that October 6th practice, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And no. Yes. In, in the one vein, the only other vein I would say is you could argue a pattern of some level of repeated behavior. Well, I think that's exactly what they're trying to do with this right, stuff. Right, but right, ultimately, right. the the one thing they're going to point to is like the big piece of evidence, the one that that you read this and it made you kind of go, oh, that's not good, is that October 6th practice, right? That's the big, huge, the smoking gun, if you will, right now. If that's the case, then why did he receive zero discipline at that time aside from a write-up? He didn't get suspended. You know, He wasn't asked to step away from the team and investigate at that time. Why was he just given one write-up and that was the only thing we know. And, and maybe there's more, I don't know. But it would seem to me that if this is all we have is that one correspondence between John Cunningham and John Brannon, one write-up about that practice, and this is now the biggest reason you have is cause to fire him? Mm-hmm. Why wasn't it like much cause to me? Right. Why wasn't it a, a punishable offense, at least back then? Why didn't you suspend him back then if it's something you are going to fire him for now? And it brings me back to my original point before we started all of this. They are firing John Brandon because they wanted a new coach. They're, they, they, they're firing John Brandon because he didn't win enough games this year. If John Brandon made the NCAA tournament, they would not be firing him. I still hold that belief, and I think this is even more evidence that that is probably the case. I still hold the belief that somebody above John Cunningham freaked out when six guys hopped in the transfer portal of, oh, my God, why is this happening to our program? I think Without that allowed all this to happen. I think it gave John too. Cunningham the green light, in my opinion. I think he yeah. had already wanted – John Brandon. Now, now again, there's tons of other stuff here and there are more sides to this. There's more context. Maybe some of this stuff is worse. Maybe there is more evidence. I will fully admit we do not know everything. I, here. And, I, and I will do the same thing, but to what we know, but I just don't understand how people saw this and like thought, Oh, okay. Now there's all this m- new information that we never knew. And it's, it's way worse than we ever thought. It's like, no, this is about what they said it would be. And I still don't see cause for firing. Now, you can be a UC fan and say, look, this was never going to work out. I'm glad all this toxicity and people hating each other and the mistrust that was going on inside the athletic departments is no longer there. It might have been the right decision long term for the health of program for everybody to cut ties and, and get away from each other. But that doesn't mean you get to not pay John Brandon five point two five million. And that's exactly it. I mean, you know, it, it, at this point. And it's UC's trying to save money because it has no money to spend. That's a big part of the issue. And it's not going to spend money to make a basketball coach go away when you told your football coach you were going to give him this and then you couldn't give him that because you said you didn't have the money to give him that. I mean, it's all awful coincidental in, in that regard. But I'm with you. It, you know, it's okay that if you don't like this coach, that he wasn't your hire. Those are all okay. That's okay. And that he didn't win enough. That's okay. But you got to pay him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just, that's how it goes. And we're past the point of whether or not 
John Brandon was good enough to be the UC coach, whether he did the right things or not. Like we're past that argument. It doesn't really matter. He's gone. He was fired. The, the argument now is whether you had caused to fire him without paying him anything. And based on this new information, I don't think we've seen anything here that would suggest that is the case for UC yet. Now I'm with you. But, I, I need to see more. I mean, I, I, if, if you can hit me with more evidence, I'll be the first one to say, yep, you're right. You guys did the right thing. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Now I know people are going to freak out about the, the comments about the water and the uh, rest and running these guys too hard and not agreeing with the training staff. I would also ask you, have you ever been around coaches and their training staff at a high level before? I mean, even at the high school level, I've seen it, but especially at the college level, do you know what a big part of your job as the, the head trainer is protect the be, athletes? Well, and it's to be the buffer against that coach because right. that That's coach right. always wants the athlete back on the court sooner than That's it's right. supposed to be. That coach exactly. always wants to push them harder than he's supposed to be. You're supposed to be the grown up that looks at the coach and says, no, this is my job. You shut the hell up and you go run your practice. Now you say it in nicer terms. So you no, have a worse relationship sure. with the guy, but you have to be the grown up and tell the coach what his role is. And you go back and forth and he rolls his eyes at you and he cusses you out occasionally. And he tells you that his guys are soft and you that's fine. That's part of your job. Now, obviously John Brandon and some of these people didn't get along well at all. And that, that could be his mix. fault. It could be, yeah, it could be anyone's fault, but, but that's not the, the point here of, like we're acting like these things are crazy that the coach wouldn't agree with the, the training staff or wouldn't like their methods of doing things. That's literally 90% of college basketball programs, college football programs, college baseball programs. The coaches don't agree with the training staffs hardly ever. That's their job. And that's the training staff's job is to make sure the right thing goes, goes on, you know? And, and like, I mean, this idea that like coaches can't make their guys run at the end of practice as punishment is wild to me. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's wild. And like, then, then we're also in this woke age where it's not about being some hardo that used to play sports and you want to tell everybody about your glory days. That's not what this is about, but we've gotten to a point where we can't question anything at all. I mean, I have major questions about what was alleged here. They had to run multiple sprints back to back to back, but nothing that anyone who's ever played sports would see as outlandish. I mean, everyone's been asked to do something similar. If you've played any sports at a reasonably high level and to hear that multiple guys are falling down and passing out and stuff like that. I need more detail. I mean, I just, I'm not going to accept that at face value just because one guy wrote it in a notebook kind of vaguely. I mean, I understand in this woke culture, you're not allowed to question anything like that. If players question their health, but I, I, I'm not going to call them soft, but I would like a little more details and context surrounding those situations because it just seems hard to believe. I mean, what what's alleged here happened I don't, I can't possibly picture it based on my experience watching practices, being at those practices. I don't know. I've just never seen anything like it happen before. There are track practices that happen every day where people run as their sport. Like that's all they do. They're not falling over, passing out and, and laying down. I, I don't know. I, I just need, I need more information there before I'm, I'm willing to go on and like, yeah, these kids were tortured or something. So yeah, I'm with you. All right. All right, Rick, as we're doing this podcast, we'll move on. we got some Reds to get to. we got a couple of great Ask Any Anything questions and, and others, but a couple of them that, that are going to take it some time. But the Bengals, as we were doing this podcast, just released their, their Ring of Honor nominees, of which people are going to be asked, the season ticket holders, to vote for two. Um, I'll, I'll run through the list real quick, Rick, and, and I think we've kind of already picked our two out of most of this, but I'll, we can do it out of this list now. Ken Anderson, Willie Anderson, Jim Breach, James Brooks, Chris Collinsworth, Isaac Curtis, Corey Dillon, Boomer, David Fulcher, Chad Johnson, Tim Crumride, Dave Lapham, 
Max Montoya, Lamar Parrish, Ken Riley, Bob Trumpy, Reggie Williams. I think for both of us, Ken Anderson's a no-brainer. I think for any fan, if he's not voted in, it would be a shame. I, I, I think he's a clear cut. He's in, right? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt he'll get it. I'm sticking with Lamar Parrish for me. He's just he's always he was always my guy growing up, and I know that sucks because I know a lot of people were pushing more on the Ken Riley front. As is going to sound callous, I think Lamar Parrish was a better corner. I think Lamar Parrish um, was a better player, and the fact that Lamar Parrish is still alive gives me a little pause to go with him. I know you're going to probably go different on it, and I know one you probably would go with, and I'm probably going to go with you, but. I'm going to go Ken Anderson, Lamar Parrish. How about you real quick? Yeah, I'm sticking. Ken Anderson is obvious. And then I'm sticking with Chad Johnson. We talked uh, about fair. that a while ago. I think all-time it, leading receiver. I mean, uh, you know, you look back and there's been some good receivers in this organization. Um, a couple of them on this list, Chris Collinsworth, Isaac Curtis, um, and Chad Johnson's got the record over all of them. Well, and he really is the face and represents that era of, for a lot of people, a lot of current fans, even the adult ones, the, the time they remember is the Bengals being good. You know, I mean, granted, they never won a playoff game during that stretch, but that's the best stretch we've had as Bengals fans for the last few decades, really. I think a lot of people see Chad Johnson as the face of that. For the current fans, the younger fans, the the guy who can bridge the gap is not only being an all-time great that that the older fans will respect and agree with, but also being the guy who's kind of the face of the franchise for younger fans. I think Chad Johnson will, will be the other guy along with Ken Anderson. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, I mean, I'm going with my two, but I think you're probably right. All right, anything else? By the way, you can can find that info at local12.com, by the way. Yeah, anything else on the ring of honor here before we slide on to our next topic? I just just want to pass along that it's out, the ballot's out, so there you go. A little breaking news in podcast form. You got to love that. I know, don't don't have that all the time. Yeah, all right. The Reds are once again the subject of controversy in Major League Baseball, Skinny. After a seven-game suspension was handed down to relief pitcher Amir Garrett for his role in, quote, inciting a benches-clearing brawl, end quote, in a game against the Cubs last week. Garrett had yelled after striking out Anthony Rizzo, and moments later, Rizzo's teammate, Javi Baez, began yelling back at Garrett, jumped over the railing of the dugout, and started walking towards Garrett on the mound. Garrett didn't engage in any physical confrontation. Baez received a fine for an undisclosed amount and no suspension. Yet, again, Garrett was suspended for seven games. This comes on the heels of Nick Castellanos' ridiculous suspension, despite Yadier Molina's antics in the Reds and Cardinals dust-up last month. Skinny, I ask you at this point, is it ridiculous to think that the MLB office is screwing the Reds or has some kind of unknown beef with the organization? No, I, I, I don't believe that. I do believe that Amir Garrett, because he's done, he's been involved in a fight before, maybe even a, uh, another verbal exchange, probably got treated more harshly. Now, now I want to be clear on this. The seven-game suspension for what he did is utterly ludicrous. Any suspension for what he did, to, in my mind, is ludicrous. I do think he should be fine. But that thing doesn't escalate if Javi Baez doesn't jump over the railing and, and basically say, come on, let's go fight. I mean, that, that ends. It, it ends if everybody just kind of keeps, keeps their distance. It was literally it nothing. Amir Garrett, look, it, it ends with Amir Garrett looking like a fool is what it ends with. Now, he's looked like a fool before. Um, but, yeah, it, it ends with nothing if, if Javi Baez. Javi Baez technically instigates it. Rizzo didn't even respond. Rizzo walked right. back to the dugout. Right, right, exactly. Um, but I think I, – I don't think MLB's got it out for the Reds, but I do think that there's radars on certain guys, and I'm going to guess Amir Garrett's got their radar attention for what he's done in the past, and they're like, okay, guy, you know, we're tired of it. We're going to slap you with this. And I, I do think that there's no way he should have been anything other than fine, and I'm even sure he should have been fined. Okay, so let's say that they don't have it in for the Reds, but how do you explain – 
the fact that Yadier Molina doesn't get anything for his, his situation in the Cardinals dust up when he was the guy grabbing people, physically touching them to start it all. And again, Baez jumps over the railings, yes. screams at Garrett, double birds him on camera, by the way, but for, for the whole MLB TV crowd, just getting double birds right in the middle of the camera. And then he's the one that charges the mound to start a fight before uh, Mustakis jumps in there. How, how the hell do those two guys get nothing in those instances? At the very least, Reds fans have to be left looking at this saying, well, you're protecting certain teams then. If, if you're not against us, then you're at least protecting certain other players or teams. And I don't know as a logical person, as a rational person, what you say to a Reds fan that feels that way right now, because there's no logical or reasonable explanations or defensible defensible explanations for what Major League Baseball has done with yeah, the, those two suspensions. Yeah, the only explanation I go to is is Garrett has, has had antics in the past, and I guess MLB has said enough is enough with it. I'm not telling you it's right. That's it's the only – if you're asking, if you're asking for that, and maybe not. Um, and certainly not to give bias nothing in that. Yeah, if you think that it, the, that it was the, like the, a bench-clearing brawl, then bias deserves something. Here's the clear-cut issue. There is no definitive line for any of this, that if you do this, it's this level of suspension. If you do that, it's that level of suspension. If you flip your bat, it's that. I mean, there's no clear-cut thing. There's no transparency. It's just, this guy's fine. He can appeal. Or this guy's suspended. He can appeal. Usually he doesn't win the appeal. Get Or in this case, he'll probably knock him down to five days, whatever. But still, th there's very little, if any, transparency. And there's no definitive line that if you do this, here is what happens. If well, you get in a shouting match, you're getting two games. If you... Um, if you fight, it's seven games. Um, if, if you get somebody hurt in a fight, it's the number of games. Are, there's no line for that. And we typically go off precedent in things like this. I mean, certainly in courts of law, but in, in leagues, you know, sporting leagues, we typically have precedent. If something happens that's similar, and then the next time you go, okay, well, that guy had three games. It's kind of a three-game suspension if you do something like that. But, I mean, we have zero rhyme or reason or consistency to the way these suspensions are being doled out. It makes absolutely zero sense. They are totally unpredictable from instance to instance on, on what they're legislating. I, 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 I do not understand at all how the MLB offices are handling these suspensions. It's just ridiculous. Feels like there's a dartboard and they just take the, take the dart and go, all right, we're going to have to do something with Garrett fire away. Shoop. Seven games, Jim. All right. Seven games. It is. All right, Baez's his turn. Shoop. Fine, Bill. All right, fine for you. No, it feels like it's a dartboard. It really does. Skinner, we got one other Reds topic here. It just happened yesterday, actually. We found out that Joey Votto broke his thumb. He was hit by a pitch. His thumb was pinched in between the ball and the bat. It uh, typically, nasty. Typically bad news, and sure enough, it was. He stayed in the game initially, was later removed, and got an X-ray, and it turns out it is broken. So he's going to be out for you know, at least a month with a broken thumb, probably more like six weeks or so. What do you think the Reds do without Joey Votto here for the next several weeks? Yeah, here's the thing. We're going to find out because there's, there's that faction, and I'm part of that faction too. Don't get me wrong. I think Joey Votto was a great player for a long time. He's just father time has gotten him like it gets everybody. He still is serviceable. I don't think he has any business batting third in that lineup. Um, uh, so we're going to go there, but we're going to find out what what now is this going to look like without Joey Votto? Because I think there's a lot of fans that have wished, hey, we want to see what they got without him. All right, we're going to find out so we get the chance to see it. For me, here's what I would do. I, Shogo's coming back, so that helps. 
So you still didn't have kind of the four-man outfield, although Cassiano starts every day, Winker starts every day. It comes down to Nyquin and, and Shogo. But Shogo's going to get a chance to play. I think he gives you the chance to have a, finally, and this is not a knock on Jesse Winker, a legitimate leadoff hitter that can then move Jesse Winker where he belongs, which is probably in the three-hole of the lineup or the second. He does not – hitting leadoff to me is a waste for that guy. Um, I know it worked out Wednesday where the lineup came back around to him and he wins the game with a single. But to me, uh, I'm I, you know, he's – he's hitting middle of the order. Now he's proven he's, he's, he's a middle of the order hitter. I, I think you move Moustakis to first. I know you're going to laugh at this. I'm leaving India at second Suarez at short. And I'm putting Senzel at third. And for those of well, us, is another position for it. No, it's not. This is what he came up doing in the minors. This is where he played in college. He was a third baseman that they then converted to center and converted to second. And as you know, most of the time, if you can play second, you can play third. If you can play third, you can play second shortstops. Usually the iffy one. Cause it's, it's, requires much more um, agility, ability, all those things. So to me, I'm going to move Moustakas, who's played first, to first. I'm leaving India at second because I'll tell you, I don't know if the kid's going to hit. If, if they keep throwing breaking balls to him, he may be a flub. But defensively, he has really sparkled. I'm leaving Suarez at short because I don't have a better alternative at the moment. Um, and I don't know when that better alternative may come. And I'm going to move Senzel back to his natural position at third base. That way, I don't have to worry about the rotation in the outfield. Son, you're the everyday third baseman for the next month. What you got? I'm totally fine with that. And I've told you multiple times, I think that is Nick Senzel's role. He is your Ryan Friel now. He is your utility guy. He will plug him in anywhere. You know he's going to miss anywhere from 20 to 70 games a year with injury. So when he's not available, so what? But when he is available, you can plug and play him at any number of spots. That is his value going forward, in my opinion. I, I don't think he's I, ever going ben to be. Zobrist. Yeah, I don't, well, and I don't think he's ever going to be that good. I don't think no, he's ever going to no, be I know. a stud. <laughs> that was... That was my hope. I think you're you're more accurate with the Ryan Friel uh, uh, analogy. Yeah, but uh, but I think he can be he can have value as a guy that can play multiple positions at a major league level. He may not be a a quality starter, but he can he can suffice, especially filling in. I'm with I'm fine with moving him to third base. And like you said, there's not a lot of shuffling going on then uh, for the outfielders, and it makes things easier on Shogo. Yeah, and I mean, for Moustakas, I mean, he's played first, so you're not asking him to do something different. Oh, yeah, he's fine at first. Indy has been great at second. I'm going to leave him there. Suarez, I mean, we could argue whether you like him to short or not, and that's fine. I know those, you know, you, no, nobody has to, and there's good reason not but, to. But, but, but by the way, we still don't have another option at shortstop. That's, to that's right. It, so it really so, doesn't matter. So, yeah, so all I'm at, the only apple cart I'm upsetting at this point is that the, as I'm moving a guy who you've asked to play center, now he has to play second, back to his original position. I'm not asking him to learn a different spot, play a different spot. He played a bunch of games in the minors at third base. That was his position. I'm asking that guy to move back to technically his natural position. What's wrong with that? Yeah, I have absolutely no problem with that. I think that seems like the most logical and probably the path of least resistance here uh, if the if the Reds are going to make moves. We'll see what they do, but I think that's a, a very good possibility that's what they go with. All right, one more topic here before we get on to our uh, little gambling talk and ask any anything. We got C.J. Frederick, the former Covcast standout and Iowa transfer, has found his new home in Lexington. It's long been rumored that Frederick would be headed to Kentucky, but he also fielded calls from Gonzaga, North Carolina, and even Cincinnati. Drug the process out a little bit longer than I think most expected, but as it turned out, he does end up as a Wildcat. Skinny, how do you think C.J. Frederick fits in at Kentucky with Coach Cal? I don't think he fits in at all with the old cow. If the, if, if there is a new cow and there's supposedly a new cow that's looking for shooters, 
fits in perfectly if that's the case. I mean, the guy's a, a 47% three-point shooter over his his two years, his last two years at Iowa. He uh, he redshirted as a freshman, so he's got two years of eligibility left. Um, he doesn't make mistakes. He turned the ball over, Rick, four times this past year. Four times. Now, some of it is he's not asked to do anything other than be a catch-and-shoot jump shooter, right? But that's not but still, entirely true either. Uh, but, but my point is, I, even if you're that guy, Four That's, turnovers is pretty damn good. It's really good. Yeah, it's absurdly good. But even even that, like, I mean, it's not like C.J. Frederick is incapable of making plays. He, he has a high IQ. He can handle the ball. I mean, heck, he brought the ball up the court a lot when he was in, in high school. We saw. I mean, it's not like this guy can't what, Rick, handle the basketball. He, he, he was as good, and having coached against him, he, he was as good of a, of a player as I've seen at the high school level that I've either watched as a journalist or coached against. Um with the pull-up game. I mean, he was really good at the putting That's different in college because there's guys that are guarding you that are as long as you. Right. But he was good at hard. Yeah, he was good at the hard dribble, 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 pull up quickly from mid-range. And again, obviously, he's a knockdown three-point shooter. Um, so yeah, if teams want to start running him off the line, he does, in my opinion, have that ability to show it go take a couple of bounces, get to the mid range and be almost automatic in the mid range. Yeah. And he's a, a great passer. I mean, a tremendous passer too. Uh, the concern is defense. He is not a, a great defender. I think people are uh, being a little bit too harsh on his lack of athleticism and defense. He's not going to be good at, at the highest level of basketball, but he is serviceable. He's not a total liability out there and he has a high enough well, IQ that he's in the right it, spots. I mean, the other thing Cal's going to have a rim protector too. He always does. Luca Garza was a great player. Luca Garza was not a rim protector. So at all. yeah, I mean, that didn't help any of those guys I, at Iowa and that's why they played primarily zone. And that's why they were so horse crap on, on D they were awful on defense. And yeah, I blame and, Fran McCaffrey as much for that as anything else. Yeah. And that was not a CJ Frederick problem. And he wasn't no. going to strengthen their defense alone, but it's like, it's not, he wasn't the liability and the reason Iowa's defense suffered. Right. In fact, they were better when he was on the court, typically defensively, especially going back to his freshman year. This year was a little bit different. He came back from injury, wasn't quite himself, was dealing with some plantar fasciitis, stuff like that. But uh, either way, the, the big question I think goes back to what you brought up initially is that Cal's style, the, the guys that he plays, typically he has not played a guy like CJ Frederick, who is not, a premier athlete who is not a good defender and, and is more of a, a spot up shooter. Cal says he's changed his mind. He needs to, he needs to switch things up and do it a little bit differently. Now he has certainly restructured his roster to that effect. I mean, Kellen Grady from Davidson is a big time shooter. CJ Frederick might be the best spot up shooter in the country right now in Dude, college basketball. And Dante, Allen, Dante Allen, right? I mean, I mean you got some shooters now you got three big time shooters and all of them can play on the floor. They're not like walk-on type guys. They're not Jared Paulson or something like that. I mean, they are actual high-level Division One college players. C.J. Frederick was wanted by Gonzaga, who is a national title contender. North Carolina, who is a blue blood. Uh, you're, we're talking about the best of the best who wanted this guy. So he can certainly play. Because he's a great UK's piece. Level. He's, a, he's great, a great piece. But Cal has to use him. And he yes. has used guys like this in the past as much. I mean, Dante Allen last year being a good example. But I'll tell you right now, C.J. Frederick, is a much better player than Dante Allen last year. I mean, Dante Allen could still get better. and, and Dante Allen could get buckets, though. Dante Allen <laughs> could get buckets in a hurry. <laughs> I mean, he could make threes. But, I mean, like, yeah, C.J. Frederick does that at a higher level. Uh, C.J. Frederick is a better player than Dante Allen last season. I'm not saying Dante Allen won't surpass him down the road at some point. He does have a little more physical ability, at length, athleticism, what have you. But as, as we stand here today, C.J. Frederick 
has proven more at a high level and has been yeah. a better college basketball player than Dante Allen. So yeah. if, you know, I mean, yeah. I think CJ Frederick would have gotten plenty of minutes on last year's UK team. Uh, I do too. And I would assume that Cal really believes it and really means what he's saying about changing things up a little bit, because there's no way you can look at what teams have done to you defensively without having any shooting on the court and not realize that you need to space things out a little bit more. You can still have your unbelievably athletic point guards and, and dribble drive type players, which by the way, he's got to figure out that piece for next year. He doesn't have a yes, point he guard does. Right now. Yeah, that, that, does, that doesn't help what happened this past week either. Right. But usually Cal has that. Usually Cal finds the premier athletes who can, who can beat you off the bounce. It's just hard to do that when there are 10 feet in the lane at all times from the defense. You would think Grady, Frederick, and even Dante Allen will be able to help things with that regard this year do you think there was any coincidence between mint's decision over the weekend and then frederick now doing this that the, the kind of that spot opened up for him to say okay I, I i'm not battling with nine billion guys people said that maybe maybe that's what C, yeah maybe that's what cj needed to see like from uk's right. perspective that, yeah, that, i don't think it would have any bearing at all yeah, no 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 no, I, no, I, no yeah i'm talking about from his perspective yeah yeah maybe maybe he wanted to be assured that davion mince wasn't going to be clogging his his minutes right but i also tend to think we heard so much about him going to UK since December that yes. <laughs> he was going to UK. I mean, the other two places he was talking about are not anywhere near home. And I think a big part of leaving Iowa was to get back closer to family and play at the highest level possible. And that's exactly what UK offers him yeah. th that chance. So, I mean, I, I think it was always going to be UK personally, but yeah, I mean, maybe the, the assurance there was, Hey, Davion is, is leaving. He's not coming back. There's going to be a spot. And, sure. um, and that not made yet. him more confident in his playing time. Yeah, it, 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 was, it was a little more drawn out than most thought. Yeah. And that would be the thing. Like a lot of people were saying, oh, they're doing this to quell the tampering accusations that were thrown out there by McCaffrey and Iowa people. But I mean, really, he is having serious Zoom calls, asking legit questions to all these other coaches. And it went multiple weeks. These, these guys are wasting a lot of time doing that. He's wasting a lot of his time talking to these people. I have to imagine there was some legitimate curiosity or interest there to say at least let me hear these other schools out these sure, are you know it's right. gonzaga i mean that's you got a that. chance to win a national title next year so it makes sense that he would at least listen yep all right skinny we talked about the kentucky derby last week during our gambling segment you gave us some picks it sounds like you did well in the oaks not so well in the derby give me the the rundown what happened last week with your betting well, Oaks Day, I did really well. In fact, I gave me a, a bankroll just to literally throw stuff against the wall on Saturday, and I kept getting blown up. I started an early pick five that I got blown up in leg two on. I I did it in early pick three, but it was a peanut of a pick three for less than 100 bucks, and I put 60 on the ticket, so you're, you're hoping to at least double your money. So I was kind of plodding along, but then I, I put together late, and I was going to make sure I was going to come out of the weekend with a profit, uh, and I had a bet on the derby. I, I had bet I had uh, five. I had I had a the Oaks Derby double. I was closing the five horses and five dollar daily doubles um, from the winner of the Oaks into the Derby. Nothing major. I think the biggest payoff would have been four hundred. The smallest payoff I think was one hundred and twenty. Um, but yeah, for the for the wager I made, I felt pretty good about that. So that was already in the in the bank of already made a wager. So I made a I made a pick four to the Derby, and I went. It was a pretty sizable ticket, almost two hundred bucks worth of a ticket, and I went. Four by four by four by by six in the derby, and I had to sweat out a a a, a, a photo finish in the race before the derby, in which I thought I won in real time, then thought I lost in in non real time, and then it turned out to be a dead heat, which is not great, but it sure had, I I did not have the horse that it was in the dead heat with, so I'm like I'm closing the six here. I'm I'm feeling really really good. 
Rick, the first derby I ever covered was 1997 when a young trainer, not a young trainer, he was a, a fairly, he had come to the derby the year before 96. I fell in love with that, the, the, that, that year's derby trail and won a pretty good chunk of money on that derby this year in the tri- that year in the trifecta when a trainer named Bob Baffert lost a nose Bob. And I just thought, boy, this guy's really good. I, I'm, I'm all in on him. So the next year, made sure to make a beeline for his barn. Um, my radio partner and I, Tom Gamble, did Radio Row for a few years. We'd do a couple of days down in, in, in Louisville uh, with our show. And he came on. My favorite one was in 98 after he'd won the Derby in 97 with Silver Charm. He and Mike Pegram, who was the owner, had real quiet. Um, and they were a blast. We had a great I think we did two segments with him. I even said, can we hold you? Absolutely. We're having a blast. They were great. So I'm like, Bob Baffert's my guy. He's been my guy since the first derby I ever covered in 1997. He's my guy. And what horse do I leave off the ticket, Rick? I leave Bob Baffert off the ticket. I I did the same thing. Why would I do that? I say Bob Baffert's horse wins every year. Just pick Bob Baffert's horse. That's what I always say. And guess what I did? Didn't even include it on a single ticket. Why? Why am I so dumb? I, yeah. And sometimes I'm, you know, I, I handicap more than trainers and, and jockeys and horses names and colors. Um, and I didn't really like the horse a ton and I just, I couldn't make the ticket any more expensive than I made it. And I, but at that point I should have just gone, all right, I'll take this horse out. Cause I, I put a 33 to one on as one of my horses on the ticket. I just thought I'm, I'm going to try to get a shooting score price here. Horse, I think still, I think he's still running. Um, <laughs> he just, he just came around a far turn. Yeah. I had um, him on my card apparently too, then. <laughs> And how I left Bob Baffert off. So the learning for curve for me anymore is I don't care if he's got three horses in, I'm putting all three on the ticket next year. Yes. Yes. What That's, am I doing? Rick? I, I've said that in the past that the only way to bet is just take Baffert's horse. And then he wins it again this year, which is just ridiculous. Like the, the consistency he's had is, is insane, but I, I have two different brains. I have my normal brain that's not that good to begin with, but, you know, it's functional. I have these thoughts like, hey, that Baffert guy seems to win a lot. Just bet on his horse. Make things easy. And then I have my betting brain, which is just an absolute lottery. It's like, you know, the the lottery machines with the balls, the random balls bouncing around and the one shoots out. That's my betting brain. There's just all these different thoughts in there. And then one shoots out when it's time to put the bet down. And that's whatever I write down. And then I get back there and I'm looking at Why the hell did I choose this? Where the hell was the Baffert horse, which is what my (laughs) normal brain would have done a hundred out of a hundred times. Yet when it's time to bet, nowhere to be found. I don't even include. I was so pissed off at myself. (laughs) I was too. I, I was, I was too. I got done. I got done doing my draft coverage about nine o'clock and, and, and had a couple of bourbons as I was finishing writing stuff. And I had money left in my account. I was going to look at Los Alamitos that night just because I was home alone. And I'm like, you know what the hell with this? I've already pissed my day away. I'm, I'm tired. Good night. I fell asleep at nine 30. So good for me. I saved more money. That is a good thing. Uh, but I, the one thing that was really nice about the Derby, just in general, I, I know you were working draft coverage, so I don't. You probably didn't. I get was, to but, do I, this. but I, but I, but I, but I had it on my phone for a chunk of the day, and sometimes in between, where I didn't think the Bengals, you know, were going to make a trade at that point on day three, and there are a few picks away, and I'm on a Zoom call. I had it on the background. Yeah, but I was going to say, uh, we went down. Uh, my cousin lives around the corner. My cousin and his wife lives around the corner from us. We went down there you know, people are vaccinated now, all that type of stuff. We go down for a derby party and it was like normal. 
I mean, it felt yeah. it yeah. was so much fun to yeah. just be hanging out, uh, you know, betting on horses, not worrying about anything else like that. I, I hope anybody else that I saw a lot of pictures out there, people wearing their hats too. and dressing yep. up and, and doing their derby parties. I hope everybody enjoyed it because, I mean, I thought it was as much fun as I've had in a weekend and in a long time. And it does finally Beautiful start day, to feel like, all that. yeah, some things like that are coming back and that that's making life fun again. All right, let's get into our Ask Any Anything segment where we will start off with a question that was submitted to us last week. And it was a good question that you wanted to pay proper respects to and, and do it justice. So we said, let's let's give you a little bit of time to think about that, do some research, come back and uh, give it to us this week. And that is your all-time starting five from area high school players, being Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, greater Cincinnati area, what have you. And you would be the head coach of them, Skinny. Yeah, and I also picked the bench, but they did ask for a starting five. So here's what I'm going to go with. Up front, I got LaSalle Thompson, um, who ended up going to Texas, playing in the NBA for a period of time, was a great player at, at, at uh, Withrow. I got Withrow's Louis Orr, who again went to Syracuse, had a good NBA career. And a lot of this is not based on NBA career. We're talking high school, but I just want to give some context of who these guys are. Jerry Lucas, you, you start there. Jerry Lucas led Middletown to never losing a game, then on to a great career at Ohio State. Um I believe Jerry was among the, when they did that top 50 NBA players of all time, I, I nah, Jerry might not have been in there for that, but Jerry was a ridiculously talented player. Um, was, was with the Cincinnati Royals at one point where I think one year he averaged 24 points and 20 rebounds. Um, Jerry Lucas was a superb high school player at Middletown. Kevin Grevy, um, who played with the, the Washington bullets and was on an NBA started a guard on an NBA championship team. He was more of a sniper, but great high school player at Hamilton. I always get my Hamilton's wrong. Back when it was Taft and Garfield. I mean, he just Hamilton Taft, then went to Kentucky, is uh, I think their fourth all-time leading scorer now, maybe third, fourth. I think he's fourth all-time leading scorer. Led him to the 1975 NCAA runner-up finish. And then the point guard was a toughie for me. I've got I've got Tom Thacker from Covington Grant. I think still the only player to win a college NCAA championship, an ABA championship, and an NBA championship. And at Covington Grant led them to a, a regional title, was just a superb player, went on to a, a nice career, obviously at UC being on a championship team. And he's not really a point guard, but he was just such a such a talent. I got OJ Mayo. Oh yeah. Has to be. Has to be. Yeah. And I didn't want to do recent. So then my bench. I've got Luke. Can I just add, Kevin Grevy is seventh all time at UK right now. Okay, so he's gone down. So yeah, it's it's different. But he only he was only able to play three years because he freshmen were not eligible when he was a freshman. So yeah, seventy two to seventy five. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So he in seven. Yeah, he was he was just a great shooter. Great, great shooter. So here's the guys that were also under consideration. A couple of them you won't know who they are. One is a guard named Robin Freeman who played at Hughes High School. Went on to uh, play at Ohio State. As a senior in high school, he averaged 39 points a game. Now, this is in the 1950s, but at Ohio State in the mid-50s, as a junior, he averaged 31 points. As a senior, he averaged 33 points. And for and you'll know the guy I think I'm talking about here. He is the godfather, little known bit of trivia here for you. If I'm not mistaken, I'm almost 100% sure of this, the godfather of Xavier PA announcer Herb Bauer. I did not know that. How about that? Robin Freeman was a great, great player. Um, so he, he's in that group. But Luke Kennard... You know, it's funny. When I start looking back at his high school career, some of the stuff he did, what a shooter. Yeah. Yeah, oh, my yeah. oh, my Lord. Oh, my Lord. Scott Droud's kind of in that mix, too. Um, he averaged 36 a game as a senior at, at Highland, scored 69 in a game, but he does not make the cut nice. of my 13-player team. But if I'm looking, today's day and age of snipers, 
if I can get me some Luke Kennard out there sniping and I can get some Scott Drought out there sniping and get OJ Mayo coming downhill and Kevin Greavy in the mid range, I'm not even sure, sure I need a front line, but, but there we go. Who do you got Scott, Scott Drought or Brandon Hatton? I think Brandon Hatton scored more points. Which one do you prefer? He did, but Scott, Scott Drought was a, was a better player, better shooter. Okay. Period. Just curious. curious Period. Period. End of story. I I, I will say OJ Mayo is my, uh, my all time number one prospect I've ever watched in the press level. He's really good. Even nationally. Uh, and by the way, Zion's those getting that, up there, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> OJ Mayo was was ridiculous in high school, and and I did only did in Northern Kentucky the counties of 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 um, of Boone, Kenton, and Campbell. If you want to extend it to Maysville, which is technically in our coverage area, I don't think I'd have them on my team, but they were really good high school players: Darius Miller, Chris Lofton. Again, I'm looking snipers. Yeah. Um, but 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 among my other subs, uh, I mentioned I got Robin Freeman, I got Kennard, Rick Calloway from uh, from Withrow. Um, I got to put Dave Cowens on the list. You know, it's funny, you know, he was not considered a great high school player, but if you look back, I think he averaged 2020 as a senior, then went to Florida state and then obviously became an MVP in the, in the NBA at, at six foot eight as a center. So he's going to be in there. He's just, he, he gives me the grit that, you know, I love Rick. I love grit. You're a great um, guy. So he'd, be in the, he'd be in the grit group. Um, Derek Dickey, um, who played at UC in the late sixties was on the, uh, golden state Warriors 75 uh, in, or, uh, NBA championship team led the city in scoring at Purcell as a junior and a senior was all Ohio as a senior. He gives me some rebounding off the bench and I got to throw him in just because he's in my era and he was impossible to guard. And if I need a true point guard to break you down with all these snipers, I'm taking Dickie Beal. There you go. Brian Grant was under finest. strong. Brian Grant was under strong consideration too, by the way. And he's, te- he's, he's in our coverage area. He went to Georgetown, obviously went to Xavier, had a long NBA career, kind of an underrated guy for me. Cause he never, you know, he never completely popped in college. He was good, but um, he'd be in my group and I got a chance to cover him in high school and see him too. So um, th- those are my group. And I'm probably missing somebody, but those are my guys. It's a great I love list. The yeah. I love, my qu- I love the question. All right. Would you categorize any coach as a quote genius? I get a vomit reflex every time I've heard that term used for LaRusso, but maybe there are more worthy candidates. He's such a genius. He didn't know the rules. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Genius gets thrown around some. Uh, I, I think it, it, it's a flippant comment. Yeah, it's a hyperbolic term. I don't. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't. A genius to me is somebody splitting an atom. Somebody um, who yeah. who has sent a rocket ship to the moon. Um, those are geniuses right. doing some X's it's and O's weird. with good. It's with, weird to call you know any other adult a genius, if we're being honest. I, listen. I don't think John Wooden was a bad coach by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think he was a great coach. He had a bunch of dudes and knew to basically go, we're going to do our thing and we're good enough that that's all we need to do to go win. All right. There's some genius to that too. I'm fine with that. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah. Genius gets thrown around a lot. People have called Sean McVay a genius. Like, and that's the you know, thing I mean, too. Come on. Wait. Listen, and it comes down to this. Paul Brown was a great football coach and arguably a genius because he was so innovative in things he did, but he also had some shaky seasons in his coaching career. I mean, let's face it. He, he took a team to the playoffs within three years, which sounds pretty genius today. And then went four and 11, the next or four and 12, the next year. Listen, there's just times where no matter how genius you are, things ain't going your way. And um, yeah, there are some coaches better than others for sure. That's why certain coaches win and they win at all kinds of stops. But yeah, genius gets thrown around way too much. You're also talking about guys that think they need to work 22 hours and sleep in their yes. own offices to be glorified gym teachers. So yes. yeah, I don't know that I would qualify any of them as 
quote unquote geniuses. Agreed. Uh, who was Skinny's favorite professional wrestler? <laughs> um, I'll go. I'll go back to Ric Flair. He just, did, he just did it for so long and so well, and was no no pun intended with so much flair. Um, I'm going. I'm well, going. Yeah, that that was intended. It was intended. I'm yeah, sorry. that was intended. But yeah. Uh, I'm I'm gonna go with Sting. You remember Sting? Just didn't. I do talk, remember Sting. Wore the black yep. and white mask. Had a baseball bat and cape. Badass. <laughs> I was Sting one time for uh, Halloween when he switched over to the NWO and had like the red mask. Who was the guy? Live action daddy. Who was that? Live oh, action daddy. Oh no. Um. Oh my gosh, he was a fat guy. I mean, a real fat. Oh my gosh. I'm gonna draw blank. Blank. Uh, I don't know. I yeah, don't know. Right. I got nothing. That's all right. I tried to do yeah. a quick Google. Nothing. I, I stopped watching wrestling in 1985. Yeah, that I, I did too. And I was born in 87. So um, <laughs> what is your fondest memory of your participation on the press box on TKR cable? I think it was when, uh, when somebody, <laughs> I, I know it's probably actually that question. Um, honestly, just being able to do a, a show like that back in the day, um, you know, it, it gave me a little exposure, gave me a chance to, be in a talk show setting gave you a chance to respond to questions quickly. Um, it was a fun show. It was, was a live call-in my, show on local yeah, access. My, yep. My man, Don Weber was the host. You okay. know, Don Weber, right? Yeah. Legend, oh, yeah. legend in Northern Kentucky. Tom Gamble did the show with me, really? uh, but with so us, or I did it with him. the two angry guys. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what was the first thing you and Gamble did together? We did a weekend, uh, uh, high school show on, on, uh, 1160 Bob. And then it kind of, blew up quickly from there about high school sports. Yep. And how, how old were you then? Uh, mid nineties. I was probably 30 ish. Huh. And this was a little prior to that. Yeah. I did not know that. I thought two angry guys was your guys like, uh, Nope. Yeah. We, we kind of started doing that kind of stuff and it, it escalated. How, how long was it before you did the two angry guys? Like after you first started doing no, about, 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 about six months to a year. Oh, okay. So it was pretty yeah. much it was quick. It was gotcha. quick. Yeah. Okay. Uh, need to know where skinny lands on Bill Maher calling Twitch. What do you know what Twitch is? You like watch other people I, play I, video I, games essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I know I mean, it's more that. than that now, but it's a live streaming platform yes. that started with video gamers. Um, Bill Maher calls people watching Twitch quote, a blanking waste of time. Your thoughts, skinny, not a big Bill Maher fan, but I, I I'm, I'm kind of with him on that. I, I don't get the point of anybody watching anybody else on like a TikTok or one of those things doing something like what's the point. <laughs> I mean, what's the, honestly, what's the point of watching somebody else game? Go game yeah. yourself if that's the case. I don't, I got nothing against people on a game. I, I do think it's a monumental waste of time for adults. I, I do. But listen, if it's your outlet, okay, that's fine. Like, it, it's your outlet. Hopefully you don't get addicted to where you're pouring yourself 10 hours in and not doing your job. Um, but to watch others do it, get, go outside and enjoy the fresh air. Do something, do something constructive. Yeah, I, I try. Don't get I don't get it. I just don't get it. I try really fine, hard to not to not be the get off the lawn guy. I know I try really hard not to judge what other people's enjoy for entertainment, because I, like if someone wants to fair. look at sports and just be like, you're a loser, you spend your entire no, life right. watching a male soap opera of a bunch of other grown men playing a sport that you have no impact on and they don't care at all about you or know you. 
they are right about that. And honestly, when you put it that way, it's like, all right, yeah, how could you criticize anyone else for anything? So like, you know, when my girlfriend is watching The Bachelor for the one millionth time and then watching the recap show afterwards, I try not to like be critical of that because I'm like, it's just as stupid for me to watch sports all the time and, and only care about that. So I, I try will say this. not to criticize that. But the watching other people play video games is one that it took me a long time to be like, OK, I guess I get it. Uh, because it, yeah, it, it didn't make sense to me either. Can you bet on it? If you can bet on it, then maybe I'm in. You can now because they have. I'm e sure you can. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure you can. Yeah. Yeah. And I that's exactly, uh, again, I, I think I think what you said is probably fair and right. You know what? Who am I to judge what you think is interesting? I just don't. I'll, I'll, I'll say I'll leave it this. I don't find that interesting. How about that? Yeah, I, I'm 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 with you on that. It's not my thing either. The one thing I have kind of learned over the years a little bit more as I've seen it, I think a lot of people. Um, one, it's like listening to a podcast for them. They find a personality that they like watching stream. So they're listening to the person talk and tell jokes while they're playing the game as much as anything. So it's almost like background noise on a podcast. So from that perspective, it's just like, okay, well, that's, that's just like your talk show host or your podcast host. You just like that personality, which that makes sense to me for one. And then two, the other thing I think a lot of people get out of it is like instructional. Like they learn well, to play the what, game better no, by that's watching. What, that's, what, that's what I'm wondering. It's like watching a guy make a move and you go, ooh, did you see that move where he crossed him over and dunked? Did and you see you the try. move where Johnny used his left thumb on the A button? <laughs> oh, for the love of God, what a move. Oh, that twirl on that joystick. My goodness. His thumb dexterity is incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> All right. Our last question here. Who goes on the Mount Rushmore of TV moms? This from our guy, Mo Egger. And Mo Egger. I, I assume we can do this. Was this meant to be like, Dirty, perverted old man just calling out hot moms, or was this? Like See, our it, it's funny mom? you say that. I, I've got to because this is one for full disclosure. I had to do a little bit ahead of time. I had I had three that I was pretty sure of because I when you're talking Mount Rushmore, there's some history too, right? I mean, like they it's haven't like the changed greatest. Mount Rushmore. Yeah, yeah, they can they can be hot, but like it has to be they're, they're the greatest for whatever reason. Is my opinion. yeah, it doesn't I, necessarily I, have to be because they're hot, but that could be why. I've got three and a wild card for the fourth. That's not on there. It's just a personal like for the kind of the reason you're saying, but I'll give you who the four probably should be. If you're going to do it, June Cleaver is an easy one for me. Okay. I mean, come on, man. Yeah, she was the original take, TV. Mom. Yeah. She was. Yeah. She's the original TV mom. Mrs. Cunningham from happy days. Mrs. C Marion Cunningham. Again, pretty generational mom on TV. Perfect mom on TV. Carol Brady. Right. I mean, come on. Carol Brady from the Brady bunch has got to be on there. And then I'm going to go with, with, I've got two. I've got Edith Bunker from, from All in the Family, Maureen Stapleton. But then I was always partial to Joanna Kearns as Maggie Malone in Growing Pains. Okay. Okay, I can see that. A couple of others that almost made the list. Um, what was the Tim Allen Tool Time show? I'm drawing a blank uh, on yeah, the Yeah, Mrs. Tool. Uh, Jill Taylor. Jill Taylor. It, it was called, yeah, Jill Taylor, but it was called Patricia um, Richardson. Home Improvement. Thank you. Home improvement. Yeah. Tool time was the show inside the show. Yes. yes. Um, she's, she's close to that list. I would give uh, everybody loves Raymond's wife, um, Deborah Baroni. Uh, Trisha oh, Heaton. oh yeah. Well, and, and her mother-in-law is maybe the most grating, annoying character in television that's history, correct. but maybe one of the best actresses because of that, that because she, correct. she was so good at her role, but yeah, that, you know, I had, she came to mind too for me. Deborah did. Um, I thought that was, she she had a lot of pop to her. I, I liked her a lot. Um, but it, see, and some of this is recency bias. So that's that's where you know, like the Mount Rushmore, that hasn't changed in a long, long time, right? I mean, they put those four cats up there, and that's, that's that. So, 
if I'm going historical, Edith Bunker becomes the fourth. Maggie Malone just a personal favorite, but a couple others. Kitty Foreman from the Stat 70s show. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, Kitty's okay. the best. Yep. And again, that comes generational, right? I grew up kind of at the end of the Beaver Cleaver. I was a teenager through the Happy Days years. Um, I was preteen in the Carol Brady years. So those are kind of my era, right? So that's right. why if you're looking Mount Rushmore of TV moms, and those were kind of the first the first main TV moms out there. And so that's why they kind of make that Mount Rushmore. Um, what I listed just if we were going to do the hot factor is Sophia Vergara from Modern Family. I mean, come on. It gets it doesn't get much better than that. I, I don't know who that is. Look her up, bro. Sophia Vergara. V-A-G-A-R-A, I believe. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that'll work. So, so you would put Kitty Foreman in over who? So who would your four be? Because, again, it's funny. It's generational. Well, yeah, I would have none of yours on mine. I would yeah. have none of yours on mine, but that being said, like I understand what you're saying from if you're doing like a collective Mount Rushmore for everybody, you'd have to have some of the names you have probably like June Cleaver because it's you know, it's it's everybody's kind of like the first TV time. mom. Yeah. yeah. Um. So Jill Taylor actually was one I had on my list too. I, I would like have gone Kitty Foreman and Jill Taylor for sure in mine. And this is my personal, you know, shows sure. like that that I grew up with. Um. I think I would go Aunt Viv. From Fresh Prince of Bel Air, Vivian Banks. Ooh, good, that's a good call. Yeah, I think I would have her in there. You know, I don't know if she has like the biggest personality per se. She wasn't certainly like the focal point of of the show at all, but uh, she was she was this, pretty good. I mean, this is a hair before your time, and she she might belong in the mix too. Um, is it Felicia Rashad from the Cosby Show? Uh, I'm on Rashad's that, wife. All right. Uh, I don't, are you, we're not talking about Claire Huxtable. Yes. Yeah. Claire okay. Huxtable. Yeah. Claire yeah. Huxtable. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's gotta be up there. That was one I, I had on the list. Um, I think she'd probably be honorable mention for me, but she's, yeah. she's up there for sure. Long time successful show. And she was a good TV mom. I'll tell you what, this is a show I didn't watch a lot, but I, I like her, uh, the cut of her jib. And I also low key <laughs> is like, she's like kind of one of them on my milf list, I guess. Lorelai Gilmore. Oh, absolutely. I, I almost had her. I am a huge fan of Lauren Graham. Huge fan. Yeah. So but here is the uh, the number one for me overall, though, that I would have on my list. The greatest TV mom of all time. Mrs. Taylor from Friday Night Lights. See, and I, I just never got into the show. I That's oh. um, what's the actress's name. I love her, too. She's yeah, she's she's sharp. Um, dad, going on. What is the actress's name? This is driving me crazy now. Connie Britton. Connie, thank you. Yes. Yeah. Who seemed to? She's one of those who got better looking the older she got. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Like younger Connie Britton does was nothing okay for you. Yeah, yeah. She, now, I wouldn't say that she was okay, but the older she got, yeah, I mean, like, I look. You wouldn't look at her and be like, "Oh, that's a good looking actress." You yeah, know, you no, would, right. You would just be like, "Okay, that's a, that's another lady walking down the street." But Connie Britton as a mom, eleven. I mean, off the charts. Yeah, it's a good call. She's one of I'll the be best looking moms. I mean, and, she, and she'll look good until she's like dead. I mean, she just well, has that look. Oh, yeah. So so here's the great part to this. I'm obviously in the older end of the spectrum. You're in the younger end of the spectrum. Moe's in the middle. I'll be interested to see where Moe's Mount Rushmore is because yours is far different than mine and understandably so. Yeah, um, but Moe strikes me as someone that watched like a, a lot of black and white WB64. Like, so I feel like he might have been watching the same shows you did just on reruns on, on regular TV later. I don't know. 
So I'll be interested to hear what his, his four is, his Mount Rushmore is. Yeah, so I feel gonna, like his is going to skew a little older, too. I mean, that would yes, be sir. fascinating because he, he did he would have grown up like his formative years were the 90s. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's Claire, Huck, Claire Huxtable's in that mix. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll right, so, see. I'm, I'm, so I'm going to go with my four. And again, it's generational. And, and we're not going for the hot factor here. But we're just going for the, the TV mom. Mount Rushmore factor, which does say something. June Cleaver, Marion Cunningham, Carol Brady, and Edith Bunker. You know what? I'll put together a graphic with this of our draft uh, or our Mount Rushmores. Y- y- your four and my four, and we'll let uh, Twitter vote and see who had the better. I'm a big, Mount I'm, I'm a big Joanna Kearns, Maggie Malone fan, though. I'm hmm. okay. So, what's your four official ones again? Give them one more time. Uh, yep, June Cleaver, Marion Cunningham from Happy Days, Carol Brady, and Edith Bunker from all in the family. Okay. And I've got Jill Taylor, Mrs. Taylor. Yes. Um, Aunt Viv. Aunt Viv. And Connie Britton, Friday Night Lights. Well, that was Mrs. Taylor. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Taylor. I, I'm sorry. I'm I sorry. Jill Taylor. And, I Ki- and, Kitty, and Kitty Foreman. And you got and Kitty, Kitty Foreman. And Kitty Foreman. Those are my four. Yep. yep. Okay. Good stuff. Be interested to see where most take. All right, Rick. Is that all we got? That's it. There we got a lot. That was a whole bunch. Thanks for being with us. Uh, for Rick Boring, I'm Richard Skinner. We'll be back next week with another midweek podcast. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Pope re-edition.